Chapter 3 of The Lone Wolf. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Lone Wolf by Louis Joseph Vance. Chapter 3 A Point of Interrogation. The man from Scotland Yard had just surrendered hat, coat, and umbrella to the vestiaire and was turning through swinging doors to the dining room. Again, embracing Lanyard, his glance seemed devoid of any sort of intelligible expression, and if its object needed all his self-possession in that moment, it was to dissemble relief rather than dismay. An accent of the fortuitous distinguished this second encounter too persuasively to excuse further misgivings. What the adventurer himself hadn't known till within the last ten minutes, that he was coming to Troyon's, Roddy couldn't possibly have anticipated. Ergo, whatever the detective's business, it had nothing to do with Lanyard. Furthermore, before quitting the lobby, Roddy paused long enough to instruct the vestiaire to have a fire laid in his room. So he was stopping at Troyon's, and didn't care who knew it. His doubts altogether dissipated by this incident, Lanyard followed his natural enemy into the dining-room with an air as devil-may-care as one could wish, and so impressive that the maitre d'hôtel abandoned the detective to the mercies of one of his captains and himself hastened to seat Lanyard and take his order. This last disposed of, Lanyard surrendered himself to new impressions, of which the first proved a bit disheartening. However impulsively, he hadn't reset Troyon's without definite intent, to wit, to gain some clue, however slender, to the mystery of that wretched child Marcel. But now it appeared he had procrastinated fatally. Time and change had left little other than the shell of the Troyon's he remembered. Papa Troyon was gone. Madame no longer occupied the desk of the case. Inquiries, so discreetly worded as to be uncompromising, elicited from the maitre d'hôtel the information that the house had been under new management these eighteen months. The old proprietor was dead, and his widow had sold out lock, stock, and barrel, and retired to the country. It was not known exactly where. And with the new administration had come fresh decorations and furnishings, as well as a complete change of personnel. Not even one of the old waiters remained. All, all are gone, the old familiar faces." Lanyard quoted in vindictive melancholy, "'Damn em!' Happily, it was soon demonstrated that the cuisine was being maintained on its erstwhile plane of existence. One still had that comfort. Other impressions, less ultimate, proved puzzling, disconcerting, and paradoxically reassuring. Lanyard commanded a fair view of Roddy across the waste of the room. The detective had ordered a meal that matched his aspect well, both of true British simplicity." He was a square-set man with a square jaw, cold blue eyes, a fat nose, a thin-lipped trap of a mouth, a face as red as a rare beefsteak. His dinner comprised a cut from the joint, boiled potatoes, Brussels sprouts, a bit of cheese, a bottle of bass. He ate slowly, chewing with the doggedness of a strong character hampered by a weak digestion, and all the while kept eyes fixed to an issue of the Paris edition of the London Daily Mail, with an effect of concentration quite too convincing. Now, one doesn't read the Paris edition of the London Daily Mail with tense excitement. Humanly speaking, it can't be done. Where, then, was the object of this so sedulously dissembled interest? Lanyard wasn't slow to read this riddle to his satisfaction, in as far, that is, as it was satisfactory to feel still more certain that Roddy's quarry was another than himself. Despite the lateness of the hour, which had by now turned ten o'clock, the restaurant had a dozen tables or so in the service of guests pleasantly engaged in lengthening out an agreeable evening, with dessert, coffee, liqueurs, and cigarettes. The majority of these were in couples, but at a table one removed from Roddy's sat a party of three, and Lanyard noticed, or fancied, that the man from Scotland Yard turned his newspaper only during lulls in the conversation in this quarter. 
of the three one might pass for an american of position and wealth a man of something more than sixty with an execrable accent a racking cough and a thin patrician cast of features clouded darkly by the expression of a soul in torment furrowed seamed twisted a mask of mortal anguish and once when this one looked up and casually encountered lanyard's gaze the adventurer was shocked to find himself staring into eyes like those of a dead man eyes of a grey so light that a little distance the colour of the irises blended indistinguishably with their whites leaving visible only the round black points of pupils abnormally distended and staring blank fixed passionless beneath lashless lids for the instant they seemed to explore lanyard's very soul with a look of remote and impersonal curiosity then they fell away and when next the adventurer looked the man had turned to attend to some observation of one of his companions on his right sat a girl who might be his daughter for not only was she too hallmarked american but she was far too young to be the other's wife a demure old-fashioned type well poised but unassuming fetchingly gowned and with sufficient individuality of taste but not conspicuously a girl with soft brown hair and soft brown eyes pretty not extravagantly so when her face was in repose but with a slow smile that rendered her little less than beautiful in all lanyard thought the kind of woman that is predestined to comfort mankind whose strongest instinct is the maternal she took little part in the conversation seldom interrupting what was practically a duologue between her putative father and the third of their party this last was one whom lanyard was sure he knew though he could see no more than the back of monsieur le comte de remy de montbillon and he wondered with a thrill of amusement if it were possible that roddy was on the trail of that tremendous buck if so it would be a chase worth following a diversion rendered the more exquisite to lanyard by the spice of novelty since for once he would figure as a dispassionate bystander the name of comte remy de montbillon although unrecorded in the almanach de goethe was one to conjure with in the paris of his day and generation he claimed the distinction of being at once the homeliest one of the wealthiest and the most liked man in france as to his looks good or bad they were said to prove infallibly fatal with women while not a few men perhaps for that reason did their possessor the honour to imitate them the reviews burlesqued him sem caricatured him forain counterfeited him extensively in that inimitable series of monday morning cartoons for le figaro one said de Morbihan instinctively at the sight of that stocky figure short and broad topped by a chubby moon-like mask with waxed moustaches womanish eyes and never-failing grin a creature of proverbial good-nature and exhaustless vitality his extraordinary popularity was due to the equally extraordinary extravagance with which he supported the latest gaelic fad the sport the parisian rugby team was his pampered protege he was an active member of the tennis club maintained not only a flock of automobiles but a famous racing stable rode to hounds was a good field gun patronized aviation and motorboat racing risked as many maximums during the monte carlo season as the grand duke michael himself and was always ready to wet rapiers or burn a little harmless powder of an early morning in the Pau prince but there were ugly whispers current with respect to the sources of his fabulous wealth lanyard for one wouldn't have thought him the properest company or the best parisian cicerone for an ailing american gentleman blessed with independent means and an attractive daughter paris on the other hand paris who forgives everything to him who contributes to her amusement adored comte remy de Morbihan but perhaps lanyard was prejudiced by his partiality for americans a sentiment the outgrowth of the years spent in new york with burke he even fancied that between his spirit and theirs existed some subtle bond of sympathy for all he knew he might himself be american for some time 
Lanyard strained to catch something of the conversation that seemed to hold so much of interest for Roddy, but without success because of the hum of voices that filled the room. In time, however, the gathering began to thin out, until at length there remained only this party of three, Lanyard enjoying a most delectable salad, and Roddy puffing a cigar with such a show of enjoyment that Lanyard suspected him of the sin of smuggling, and slowly gulping down a second bottle of bass. Under these conditions, the talk between de Mobillon and the Americans became public property. The first remark overheard by Lanyard came from the elderly American, following a pause and a consultation of his watch. Quarter to eleven, he announced. Plenty of time, said de Mobillon cheerfully. That is, he amended, if mademoiselle isn't bored. The girl's reply, accompanied by a pretty inclination of her head toward the Frenchman, was lost in the accents of the first speaker, a strong and sonorous voice in strange contrast with his ravaged appearance and distressing cough. "'Don't let that worry you,' he advised cheerfully. "'Lucia's accustomed to keeping late hours with me, and who ever heard of a young and pretty woman being bored on the third day of her first visit to Paris?' He announced the name with the hard C of the Italian tongue, as though it were spelled Lucia. "'To be sure,' laughed the Frenchman. One suspects it will be long before Mademoiselle loses interest in the Rue de la Paix. You may well, when such beautiful things come from it, said the girl. See what we found there today. She slipped a ring from her hand and passed it to de Mobillon. There followed silence for an instant, then an exclamation from the Frenchman. But it is superb! Accept, Mademoiselle, my compliments. It is worthy even of you. She flushed prettily as she nodded smiling acknowledgment. Ah, you Americans, de Mobillon sighed. You fill us with envy. You have the souls of poets and the wealth of princes. But we must come to Paris to find beautiful things for our womenfolk. Take care, though, lest you go too far, Monsieur Bannon. How so? Too far. You might attract the attention of the lone wolf. They say he's on the prowl once more. The American laughed a trace contemptuously. Lanyard's fingers tightened on his knife and fork, otherwise he made no sign. A sidelong glance into a mirror at his elbow showed Roddy still absorbed in the Daily Mail. The girl bent forward with a look of eager interest. The lone wolf? Who is that? You don't know him in America, mademoiselle? No. The lone wolf, my dear Lucia, the valetinarian exclaimed in a dryly humorous tone, is the sobriquet fastened by some imaginative French reporter upon a celebrated criminal who seems to have made himself something of a pest over here these last few years. Nobody knows anything definite about him, apparently, but he operates in a most individual way and keeps the police busy trying to guess where he'll strike next. The girl breathed an incredulous exclamation. But I assure you, de Mobillon protested, the rogue has had a wonderfully successful career, thanks to his dispensing with confederates and confining his depredations to jewels and similar valuables, portable and easy to convert into cash. Yet, he added, nodding sagely, one isn't afraid to predict his race is almost run. You don't tell me, the older man exclaimed. Have they picked up the scent at last? The man is known, de Mobillon affirmed. By now the conversation had caught the interest of several loitering waiters who were listening open-mouthed. Even Roddy seemed a bit startled, and for once he forgot to make business with his newspaper, but his wondering stare was exclusively for de Mobillon. Lanyard put down his knife and fork, swallowed a final mouthful of Haubrion, and lighted a cigarette with the hand of a man who knew not the meaning of nerves. Garçon, he called quietly, and ordered coffee and cigars with liqueur to follow. Known, the American exclaimed. They've caught him, eh? <laughs> I didn't say that, de Mobillon laughed, but the mystery is no more in certain quarters. Who is he, then? That, monsieur, pardon me, I'm not yet free to state. Indeed, I may be indiscreet in saying as much as I do, yet among friends.
His shrug implied that, as far as he was concerned, waiters were unhuman and the other guests of the establishment non-existent. But, the American persisted, perhaps you can tell us how they got on his track? It wasn't difficult, said de Mobillon. Indeed, quite simple. This tone of depreciation is becoming, for it was my part to suggest the solution to my friend, the chief of the Sirette. He had been annoyed and distressed, had even spoke of handing in his resignation because of his inability to cope with this gentleman, the lone wolf. And since he is my friend, I too was distressed on his behalf, and badgered my poor wits until they chanced upon an idea which led us to the light. You won't tell us? the girl protested, with a little move of disappointment, as the Frenchman paused provokingly. Perhaps I shouldn't. And yet, why not? As I say, it was elementary reasoning, a mere matter of logical deduction and elimination. One made up one's mind the lone wolf must be a certain sort of man. The rest was simply sifting France for the man to fit the theory, and then watching him until he gave himself away. You don't imagine we're going to let you stop there, the American demanded in an aggravated tone. No, I must continue. Very well. I confess to some little pride. It was a feat. He is cunning, that one. De Mobillon paused and shifted sideways in his chair, grinning like a mischievous child. By this maneuver, thanks to the arrangement of mirrors lining the walls, he commanded an indirect view of Lanyard, a fact of which the latter was not unaware, though his expression remained unchanged as he sat, with a corner of his eye reserved for Roddy, speculating whether de Mobillon were telling the truth or only boasting for his own glorification. "'Do go on, please,' the girl begged prettily. "'I can deny you nothing, mademoiselle.' Well, then, from what little was known of this mysterious creature, one readily informed he must be a bachelor with no close friends. That is clear, I trust? Too deep for me, my friend, the elderly man confessed. Impenetrable reticence, the Count expounded, Satentius, and enjoying himself hugely, isn't possible in the human relations. Sooner or later one is doomed to share one's secrets, however reluctantly, even unconsciously, with a wife, a mistress, a child, or some trusted friend, and a secret between two is a prolific breeder of platitudes. Granted this line of reasoning, the lone wolf is of necessity not only unmarried but practically friendless. Other attributes of his will obviously comprise youth, courage, imagination, a rather high order of intelligence, and a social position. Let us say, rather, an ostensible business, enabling him to travel at will hither and yon without exciting comment. So far, good. My friend the chief of the Sureta forthwith commissioned his agents to seek such an one, and by this means several fine fish were meshed in the net of suspicion, carefully scrutinized, and one by one let go, all except one, the veritable man. Him they sedulously watched, shadowing him across Europe and back again. He was in Berlin at the time of the famous Reinhardt robbery, though he compassed that coup without detection. He was in Vienna when the British embassy there was looted, but escaped by a clever ruse and managed to dispose of his plunder before the agents of the Sureta could lay hands on him. Recently he has been in London, and there he made love to, and ran away with, the diamonds of a certain lady of some eminence. You have heard of Madame Omber, eh? Now by Rade's expression it was plain that, if Madame Omber's name wasn't strange in his hearing, at least he found this news about her most surprising. He was frankly staring, with a slackened jaw and with stupefaction in his blank blue eyes. Lanyard gently pinched the small end of a cigar, dipped it into his coffee, and lighted it with not so much as a suspicion of tremor. His brain, however, was working rapidly in effort to determine whether de Mobillon meant this for warning, or was simply narrating an amusing yarn founded on advance information and amplified by an ingenious imagination. For by now the news of the Omber affair must have thrilled many a continental telegraph wire. Madame Omber, of course, the American agreed thoughtfully. 
Everyone has heard of her wonderful jewels. The real marvel is that the lone wolf neglected so shining a mark as long as he did. But truly so, monsieur. And they caught him at it, eh? Not precisely, but he left a clue, and London to boot, with such haste as would seem to indicate he knew his cunning hand had, for once, slipped. Then they'll nab him soon? Ah, monsieur, one must say no more, de Montbillon protested. Rest assured the chief of the Sureta has laid his plans. His web is spun, and so artfully that I think our unsociable outlaw will soon be making friends in the prison of the Sante. But now we must adjourn. One is sorry. It has been so very pleasant. A waiter conjured the bill from some recess of his waistcoat and served it on a clean plate to the American. Another ran bawling for the vestiaire. Roddy glued his gaze afresh to the Daily Mail. The party rose. Lanyard noticed that the American sign, instead of settling the bill with cash, indicating that he resided at Troyon's as well as dined there. And the adventurer found time to reflect that it was odd for such as he to seek that particular establishment in preference to the palatial modern hostelries of the Rive Droit, before de Montbillon, ostensibly for the first time espying Lanyard, plunged across the room with both hands outstretched and a cry of joyous surprise, not really justified by their rather slight acquaintanceship. Ah! Ah! he clamored vivaciously. It is Monsieur Lanyard, who knows all about paintings. But this is delightful, my friend. One grand pleasure. You must know my friends, but come. And seizing Lanyard's hands, when that one somewhat reluctantly rose in response to this surprisingly over-exuberant greeting, he dragged him willy-nilly from behind the table. And you are American, too. Certainly you must know one another. Mademoiselle Bannon, with your permission, my friend, Monsieur Lanyard. And Monsieur Bannon, an old dear friend, with whom you will share a passion for the beauties of the art. The hand of the American, when Lanyard clasped it, was cold, as cold as ice. And as their eyes met, that abominable cough laid hold of the man, as it were by the nape of his neck, and shook him viciously. Before it had finished with him, his sensitively colored face was purple, and he was gasping, breathless, and infuriated. Monsieur Bannon, de Morbihan explained disconnectedly. It is most distressing. I tell him he should not stop in Paris at this season. It is nothing, the American interposed brusquely between paroxysms. But our winter climate, monsieur, it is not fit for those in the prime of health. It is I who am unfit, Bannon snapped, pressing a handkerchief to his lips. Unfit to live, he added venomously. Lanyard murmured some conventional expression of sympathy. Through it all, he was conscious of the regard of the girl. Her soft brown eyes met his candidly, with a look cool in its composure, straightforward in its inquiry, neither bold nor mock demure and if they were the first to fall, it was with an effect of curiosity sated, without hint of discomfiture, and somehow the adventurer felt himself measured, classified, filed away. Between amusement and pique, he continued to stare while the elderly American recovered his breath, and de Morbihan jabbered on with unfailing vivacity, and he thought that this closer scrutiny discovered in her face contour suggested maturity of thought beyond her apparent years, which were somewhat less than the sum of Lanyard's, and with this the suggestion of an elusive, provoking quality of wistful languor, a hint of patient melancholy. We are off for a glimpse of the Montmartre, de Morbihan was explaining. Monsieur Bannon and I. He has not seen Paris in twenty years, he tells me well it will be amusing to show him what changes have taken place in all that time one regrets mademoiselle is too fatigued to accompany us but you my friend now if you would consent to make our third it would be most amiable of you i'm sorry lanyard excused himself but as you see i'm only just in from the railroad a long and tiresome journey you are very good but i good de Morbihan exclaimed with violence i on the contrary i am a very selfish man I seek but to afford myself the pleasure of your company. You lead such a busy life, my friend, romping about Europe, here one day, God knows where the next, that one must make one's best of your spare moments. You will join us, surely. Really, I cannot tonight. Another time, perhaps, if you'll excuse me. 
but it is always this way de mobion explained to his friends with a vast show of mock indignation another time perhaps his invariable excuse i tell you not two men in all paris have any real acquaintance with this gentleman whom all paris knows his reserve is proverbial as distant as lanyard we say on the boulevards and turning again to the adventurer meeting his cold stare with the demomion grin of quenchless effrontery as you will my friend he granted but should you change your mind well you'll have no trouble finding us ask any place along the regular route we see far too little of one another monsieur and i am anxious to have a little chat with you it will be an honour lanyard returned formally in his heart he was pondering several most excruciating methods of murdering the man what did he mean how much did he know if he knew anything he must mean ill for assuredly he could not be ignorant of roddy's business or that every other word he uttered was riveting suspicion on lanyard of identity with the lone wolf or that roddy was listening with all his ears and staring into the bargain decidedly something must be done to silence this animal should it turn out he really did know anything it was only after profound reflection over his liqueur while roddy devoured his daily mail and washed it down with a third bottle of bass that lanyard summoned the maitre d'hôtel and asked for a room it would never do to fix the doubts of the detective by going elsewhere that night but fortunately lanyard knew that warren which was troyon's as no one else knew it roddy would find it hard to detain him should events seem to advise an early departure End of chapter three